We're in the final stretch. We're getting there. And we're breaking things. All right. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. Um, when you look at, at John 21, um, it's kind of odd that these 14 verses seem to be set apart from the rest of it, um, since the rest of it really depends on these first 14 verses. Um, but John likes to confound us, I think. So, hear the word of our God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other, others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. Then Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the full net of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out in it, and bread, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, just as Jesus revealed himself to the disciples... We ask that he would now reveal himself to us through this account. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to understand, to, to grasp what John intends for us to see about Jesus. Father, it seems in many ways confusing. And so we ask that you would grant clarity to us so that in knowing more about Jesus, we would trust more to Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, for those of you who haven't written a book before, 
it's not fun. At one point, I thought it would be fun. But I, I've, I've long since gone past that rather naive notion that it was fun. And one of the things that's not fun about it is that you always want to go back and fix it. I'll be reading some other book, and I'll be going, Oh, man, I should have said that in my book. And so there's this incredible temptation that I experience to keep taking it back from Ed and uh, getting more into it and violating what Richard Pratt told us so many years ago, that you cannot say everything every time you say anything. <laughs> there always seems to be more to say, more than I wish I could put into it. And I get the sense that that is exactly what happened with John's Gospel. Because as we looked at last week, those last couple verses in chapter 20 seem to indicate that you know, that would be a good signifier for us this is the end. okay? But John lived in a very different day than I did. I can go back with my computer and go anywhere within the, the context, the contents of my book and write whole new paragraphs and sentences and change things. Well, you know, for him to do that is much more work. He's got to redo whole entire scrolls. And so what I imagine he did is he had finished this and perhaps maybe the next day or something he realized by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, there's something more I have to say. There's something more they need to know. And as what sets this, these 14 verses apart from the rest of uh, chapter 24, 21 is that notion of he revealed himself. We find it twice in the, in the first two verses, and we find that phrase again in verse 14. This functions as kind of the bookends and the point so that we don't miss it. There was something else about Jesus that he revealed to the disciples and something else that this particular disciple wanted to make sure that we understood about Jesus. And so, here it is. There have been some people, like Amy's heretical ancestor, who think that this doesn't belong in the Bible, that some other John wrote this, someone else pretending to be John may have written this, but I believe it is the sure word of God because there's no textual evidence whatsoever that would indicate that it was not original. So, the big idea this morning is that Jesus is the source of fruitful ministry. I think that's the big picture of what John is trying to reveal about what Jesus revealed to his disciples. And let's start with the bad news, so to speak, is that the disciples or disciples are often discouraged and directionless. Here we, see, we remember that at the end of chapter 20, Jesus had commissioned them and he blew on them, symbolically placing the Spirit upon them. As I have been sent by the Father, so now I am sending you into the world. And so these are 11 men that have a mission. Okay? They've gone to Galilee. They've gone to a familiar place. This is uh, the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. It had both of those names. And so this is where they used, some of them anyway, used to live and work. But we don't see these men yet engaging in ministry. 
There's no implication whatsoever from this text that that's what's going on. This is before the events of Acts chapter 1, which resulted in the ascension of Jesus and Him telling them to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes with power. And so this is between the initial call to ministry and the empowerment uh, of for, for ministry. This is the in-between times. And about these times, Luke says in Acts 1 that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so this is one of those additional appearances by Jesus that the other gospel writers don't mention, but John does. And again, the emphasis here is on Jesus revealing himself. But what are these men doing? We're not sure what in the world they're doing, but Peter comes up with this statement. He says to the rest of them, the the other six guys that happened to be with him, um, we're not sure where the others were, but he says, I'm going fishing. Not, I'm going down to the market to tell people about Jesus. Uh, Not, I'm going down to the synagogue to reveal how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. I'm going fishing. We don't know if he's bored or if he's broke. I mean, John just really gives us the scantiest of details here. Is this recreational fishing or is this vocational fishing? But we see, we remember the character of Peter in that he is quite impetuous. He is the one we would have imagined would be outside the synagogue, and yet... He's not. He somehow, I think, is retreating to that which is safe, that which is comfortable, that which is known. In other words, Peter's a lot like us. Because we often retreat into the safe, the comfortable, and the known. That God's people have this persistent problem, and that problem is to resist the call to ministry that we have been given. The call to serve. That doesn't mean that all of us are serving vocationally like Peter does, or is called to. But still, in the places God calls us, we have a tendency to resist. Now, he's not like Moses and Jeremiah. I mean, that's why we read uh, Exodus 4 this morning, so that we might hear uh, some of the ways that Moses was kind of going, not me, Lord. Been there, done that, failed miserably, and by the way, you know, I can't speak very well. And so Moses brings up all of these excuses before God as the reason why he should not be the one to go and be God's mouthpiece for the release of the, of the Israelites from Egypt. And then we have Jeremiah and his call in chapter chapter 1. We see that Jeremiah is basically going, I'm too young. He's the opposite of Moses. Moses was too old, you see. Jeremiah, too young. I can't do this. I am but a youth, he says in verse 6. But they're not the only ones who fought with God. We have Jonah. Jonah hears the call to go to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? he runs in the exact opposite direction. He jumps on a ship to go to Tarshish. He runs. 
And so Peter is not quite as bold and impetuous as these men were. He wasn't arguing with God and he wasn't running in the complete opposite direction, but we see that he's drifting. He seems to have lost sight of that which he's called to do. And we, too, can drift at times. We can hide in the safe, in the predictable. We can easily be distracted from mission that we've been called to. When I was working at Ligonier, it's on the East Coast, and so you don't want to close at 5 o'clock because you have all those West Coast people who are still going to place orders, you know. And so some guys would work it until 9 o'clock at night, and, you know, sometimes I'd be on that rotation for the night shift, so to speak. And I remember there was one time that was um, pretty interesting, and I heard about it the next day. Because two of the guys were a little bored, they were a little distracted, they had this little football, and so here they are, it was maybe a little slow, the phones weren't ringing that much, but they're tossing the football back and forth, back and forth, and then came someone important. (laughs) Bagged. (laughs) We can get distracted from our purpose just as these young men were distracted from their purpose. And so I don't think fishing here was essentially a very good thing. But the other guys did because they all went out and got into the boat. Now we saw in Luke 5 that after um, that episode, they left it all and followed Jesus to fish after men. So apparently, the boat still existed. They didn't burn the boat. They didn't burn the nets. It sort of sat in dry dock, or maybe Zebedee himself had uh, hired men to work the boats for him, but there they most likely used the same boats that we find in Luke 5. Have you ever been fishing at night? It's different. I did speck fishing once, and you you put these big floodlights on on the boat, because that way it shines on the surface and attracts the speckled trout. So they come and they eat and get your hook, and you get lots of fish. This is one of the few times I was very successful at fishing. Usually I'm a very poor fisherman, okay? But I did well that night. These guys had no such providence. They caught nothing. In other words, they got nothing for their labor but exhaustion, and they lost a lot of sleep in the process. That's the hardest part. It's like working the night shift all night. You come home, and you're exhausted. But now they had nothing to show for all of this effort. When we resist mission, sometimes things just get worse. So I think it's important that they didn't catch anything that night. That's part of what is being revealed to them. We'll get to that in a moment. But we see Moses in his initial attempt at freeing Israel from Egypt, he lost 40 years of life out in the wilderness. And then when he got the call to do it God's way and he resisted, he lost glory. Because now he's not going alone. 
Now there's a sense in which because of his complaint and I can't talk very well, now he's going to have Aaron talk for him. He's going to share some of the glory God was going to give him with his brother Aaron. We see Jonah. Didn't go well for Jonah. God was going to make sure that he fulfilled the thing that he had called him to. Okay, God didn't give up. He didn't say, oh man, Jonah didn't go. I guess I'll pick somebody else. No, he sent the storm to halt Jonah's progress in the wrong direction. And then when Jonah tried to, to kill himself, essentially, by saying, toss me overboard, you know, and then the, they'll appease God. Um, no, that was not going to appease God. And while the storm stilled, he sent the fish or whale to swallow him and preserve him until such time as Jonah repented and said, all right, I'll go to Nineveh. You see, God is not going to just let you off the hook that easily. I've been there. I've had years of my, my life wasted because of my disobedience and pursuing call. And so we see God's people discouraged, and directionless tend to drift from Jesus' call to mission. And that's an important aspect of this so that we can see who Jesus is and why he's so important. And we see, first off, that Jesus rescues us from pride in doing ministry on our own. Yes, your notes have changed, if you're one of those people who takes notes. Okay? Jesus rescues us from pride in doing ministry on our own. You see, the moment of directionless discouragement is exactly when Jesus shows up to reveal himself. He shows up after they've spent the night fishing. He doesn't prevent them from spending the night fishing, but they've got nothing to show for it. And that is the moment when Jesus shows up to reveal himself. And first he calls out children. Now, that's like saying guys. Okay, it's it's not meant to be uh, you know putting them down or or anything like that. Jesus is gentle with them. I would have been tempted to call them a name, like "Hey morons." Okay, don't you get this whole thing yet? All right, and that reminds us the need to be gentle in ministry. Children, do you have any fish? And so here's this gentle sort of uh, question that's meant for them to see more than is really asked. And of course, they must answer to Jesus, no. We need to, to recognize here that Jesus is not condemning them. This is something of a gentle poke. It's sort of a reminder of their fruitless endeavor. And he's not going to leave them in this fruitlessness but it's important for us to note that at this point, they're about a hundred yards offshore, okay? A football field offshore. And I can see well for distance. I have to wear glasses to read, but I can see well for distance. But if you were to stand on the far side of a football field, I probably wouldn't be able to identify you unless there was something characteristic about you, like Eli's faux hawk. Okay, I could, I could spot one of my children, perhaps, but I might not be able to tell a difference between Rachel and Jaden at that distance. Okay? Especially if their hair is similar in length. 
So they're not sure who it is. They haven't recognized his voice because, you know, a hundred yards of water does funny things to sound as well. So they don't realize that it's Jesus yet. And this is sort of an oddly familiar moment. It's, it sounds very similar to what we find in Luke 5. And Jesus shouts out to them, cast on the right side. Now, again, they're not sure who he is, but they think that maybe he sees a school of fish that they haven't seen. We're not sure exactly why, but they do exactly what Jesus said. They cast the net on the right side of the boat. And now the catch is so large they cannot haul it in. We see something of a miraculous catch of fish because in part it is not breaking the nets. It is similar to what we see in Luke 5 as well. I think this is an illustration of what we found in the Upper Room Discourse in, in John 15 when he talks about, I am the vine and you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing. They had heard this teaching in the Upper Room. Now it's time for them to learn this teaching in real life. They have tried to do something as simple for real fishermen, unlike myself, as catching fish and come up with nothing. Remember, that's what they did for a living. They caught nothing that day, that night. And now Jesus provides almost instantaneously this large haul of fish that is so big they cannot pull it out of the water and into the boat. I think he's reminding them of what Paul learned and told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay in order to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. They needed to learn that the power of ministry was not in themselves, which is what pride drives us to think, that we can do this, we can tackle this, we can go ahead. And Jesus says, no, really, you can't. You need me. Because the power comes from me. The life comes from me, the vine, in order that you might bear fruit. So this does not mean laziness on our part, but as Paul says to the Colossians, I toil, I struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so here's this great mystery of Paul struggling and toiling, but he recognizes that he's not toiling in his own strength, but he is relying upon God and toiling and struggling in God's strength to accomplish the ministry that has been given to him. And so I think part of what's going on here is that He's teaching them, he's revealing to them that ministry in the power of the flesh is fruitless. Nothing good will come of it. Whether it's in the church or in the parachurch or in the workplace or your neighborhood. It will come to nothing. But rather Christ must work in us and through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that dependence or lack of dependence is ultimately revealed to us by prayer. 
The only people who pray are the ones who recognize they're dependent. That they need help. Pride is the biggest killer of prayer that there is. When we recognize our our dependence and weakness, then we pray. And God works. But the struggle is, is that people hate to be weak. We hate to be dependent. We hate those limitations. Last couple of days, one of our neighbors and friends, uh, her dad had a stroke. And so imagine for a moment, some of you have probably felt this. This is probably the patient I would be. He has no feeling on his right side, okay? And yet, every time he has to go to the bathroom, he crawls out of bed and falls down because he doesn't want to ask for help. Pride. I can do this. And in reality, we can't. We're intended to rely upon Christ for whatever ministry He calls us to, including the ministry of motherhood, since it's Mother's Day. Okay. One of the things I appreciated a lot about uh, Zach Eswin's book, The Imperfect Pastor, is that he goes through that temptation for pastors as if we are infinite. As though we can be everywhere like God is. And that means we can know everything and we can solve every problem. We can't. We can't believe the lie and we can't believe the expectation that some people, some people put upon us. It is only He who is the Savior. The same Paul who strived so hard said, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Again, that same concept we saw in Colossians 1 here in 1 Corinthians 15. He works hard, but it's because the grace of God is working in him to do this. And now the text gets a little strange. Suddenly the disciple whom Jesus loved realizes it's him. It's the Lord. And he says this to Peter. Peter, it's the Lord. Now, part of me goes, why is he not saying Jesus? Why is he not going, Peter, it's Jesus. I think it's because they have this newfound appreciation through the resurrection that while he's still Jesus, he's far greater than a mere man. They have a a new appreciation of his authority as the Lord. Peter's response in Luke 5 with the great miraculous catch of fish was to fall down before Jesus, not in worship, but to say, get away from me! I'm wicked! Here, on the other hand, we have Peter getting dressed 
to jump in the water. Okay? The text notes that he was stripped down. Uh, that's the word we get uh, gym, gym from, gymnastics. Okay? Um, so he was stripped down. It can mean either that he's completely naked or that he's down to his undergarments. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in a fishing boat with five other men, I want something on. Okay? Maybe I'm just a little weird. Okay? It's not just because of five other guys, but also the danger involved in all of this. If you read The Perfect Storm, uh, you know, don't, uh, you know, the book, okay? And what I love about the book is he goes into all of these uh, rabbit trails, okay? Uh, one of the rabbit trails is about how dangerous deep sea fishing is professionally and how it, it is one of the most dangerous occupations on earth because you can get caught in nets and dragged out to sea and die. So I don't want anything getting caught in a net or anything like that and me being cast off. So you want to be protected, so you want something on. But you don't want loose garments, like the outer garments, which can get caught or snagged so that you get pulled over. And so here we have Peter, who's stripped down. I'm sure he's wearing something. But he feels compelled to go swimming after he puts on his outer garment which is the last thing that I would want to do if I'm about to go swimming. Why? I suspect it's because he wants to be presentable before the Lord. We talked about ties in Sunday school. I'm not saying he'd put on a coat and tie to go see Jesus here, but he doesn't want to be in his underwear either. There's something that has changed in their relationship such that Peter wants to be presentable to him. If you come and knock on my door, I'm not going to answer the door in my underwear. So rest assured. Feel, feel free to knock. Okay? But part of what we see here is the consistency of people. It's John who recognizes Jesus first. The one that Jesus loved is the one who goes, it's him. Just as he was the first to believe in the resurrection. So John is consistently more perceptive, but Peter is consistently more impulsive. And this is a nice reminder to us that it takes all kinds of disciples to fulfill God's ministry. It takes perceptive disciples and it takes impetuous disciples and everything in between. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 1 where it says, God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He talks about how not many of you Corinthians were noble. Not many of you Corinthians were rich. He took ordinary people like these fishermen. If I'm going to start a kingdom, I'm not starting with the fishermen. And yet that is what Jesus did. He does not pick the eloquent, or those filled with wisdom, but he picks ordinary people. And so Jesus reveals himself to them and to us as the source of fruitful ministry. He is the, the strength 
behind our ministry. But there's more that he reveals. Jesus rescues us from the fear that keeps us from ministry. Indeed, on the one hand, there's pride that he must rescue us from, the pride that leads to self-dependence, self-reliance in ministry, but there's also the fear that keeps us from actually engaging in ministry, and Jesus must rescue us from that as well. You see, he greets the seven disciples on the shore by the charcoal fire. There is only one other place in the entirety of Scripture where this word is used, and that is the fire that Peter stood next to when he said, sorry, don't know him. Part of the fear that might keep Peter from engaging in ministry. Jesus provides additional fish because when they show up, the fish are still in the net, but Jesus has other fish that are on this fire. He's going to sustain them from the long night of fishing even before they get the fish out of the net. And He invites them, come and have breakfast. And so we see Jesus caring to these weary men, sustaining them. This is slightly different from what we see in Luke 24. We have another resurrection appearance of Jesus. And there it says He gave them a piece of broiled fish. They gave Him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. But here we see Jesus come, eat. We have this, uh, this notation that there were 153 fish, large fish, in the net. We know the number because they would have counted the fish. They didn't just leave them there. They most likely sold them. But Jesus gave them these fish to sustain them financially until the coming of the Spirit in power that they might then be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. Monday I sat in a meeting with a prospective church planter that's gonna, that hopefully will come to Tucson. And one of the things that's a, a very real thing is you know, we can't issue a call until he goes through the assessment center and all of, you know, these, and he's got to pass his ordination exam. So there's all of these things that he's got to get through before he can be paid as a church planter. How am I going to feed my family? I don't know how he's going to feed his family. But I know that when I've needed to feed my family, Jesus has not forsaken me. And so Jesus will find a way to feed this man and his family during the interim, just as Jesus fed these men in their interim. And so we see that Jesus has revealed himself as Lord, but also a Lord who deeply loves his disciples. Okay? He's not a despot. He's not lording it over them. We see the gentleness of Jesus. We see the provision of Jesus. We see His love, His care, His concern for them in the midst of this. He's not coming in like in the temple and turning over tables. He's turning over fish on the fire. 
so his disciples can eat. His love for us is not limited to his sacrificial death upon the cross for our propitiation. It is also practical. It's also addressed to our needs. And so we can trust him, not only with our eternal condition, but also with our earthly condition. That's part of what's going on in Ephesians 1, uh, sorry, Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This idea that God's power is at work within us and that he can do more than we could ever imagine that he would do. You see, part of what is being revealed here is that Jesus is concerned with our weakness. Jesus is concerned with our limitations. He is concerned with our fears. He's concerned with our wounds. In other words, he is not like General George Patton. If any of us have seen that old film with George C. Scott, we're perhaps familiar with the scene where General Patton goes into the field hospital and there is a shell-shocked man. And instead of showing compassion to the shell-shocked man, he slaps him upside the head and yells at him in front of the rest. That's not what Jesus does. That's not the kind of leader and Lord that we have. He's not going to slap you upside the head. He's going to be gentle with you in your weakness. He's going to be tender. We have this fear that we can't measure up. We're like Moses. We're like Jeremiah. We want to make excuses for all of the reasons why we can't engage in this ministry. These things that keep us from fulfilling our calling. And Jesus doesn't listen to us. But neither does He cast us out. He deals with us like tender, bruised reeds like smoldering wicks. He doesn't discard us as useless to Him, but rather He works in and through us for His glory. He takes ordinary people like us to do amazing things. Because when He uses ordinary people, then it's obvious that it's all about Him and not about us and how great we are to accomplish these things. There's hope for ordinary people like me. So John realized that there was more to say. There was more that his original audience and the audience of the future needed to hear. They needed to know more about Jesus than he had already written. And that that while we're weak, while we are foolish at times, while we can be burdened with guilt and so much more, fulfilling 
the mission that they had been given did not ultimately rest on them and on their gifts, just like it doesn't rest on us and our gifts. Ministry ultimately rests on Jesus, who strengthens us, who gives us wisdom, who gives us direction, who loves us in our weakness, and brings glory to Himself by using such jars of clay as us. And so Jesus calls ordinary people into His service. And so only the flawed need apply. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the honesty of Your Word. That the weakness of Your people is not edited out. It's left in so that we might be encouraged. Help us to really believe that You use flawed people like us. Ordinary people like us. With our strengths and weaknesses, our frailties, our limitations. that you have a place of service for just about every saint you have redeemed. Help us to know that place of service and enter that place of service. To trust you in doing that thing of service. Father, rescue us from our pride and rescue us from our fear. so that neither cripples the work of the kingdom. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.